Uh, there should be a slide hopefully coming up on the screen. In C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, when Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tell the four children that Aslan, the, the Christ-like figure in the book, is a lion, Susan replies, oh, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver said, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You reckon that's probably one of the most famous quotes from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. If you haven't read it and you want to, it's one of those books that that you must read. It's a great story. Uh, Or you can just go and visit Bob and Sue Hibbard down at Elliot Heads uh, and check out their Narnia cupboard with lots and lots of uh, Narnia quotes. I'd say, though, it's pretty common for people to perceive Jesus as safe or even impotent, uh, powerless, okay with whatever, perhaps. Even though he works these miracles and and he teaches with such authority, sometimes people have that view that the God of the Old Testament is judgy And the God of the New Testament is all love and so okay with whatever. But you cannot read a passage like what was just read to us now and hold that view. In these verses, to state the obvious, Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the Jewish religious leaders. And it's heavy, isn't it? Seven woes. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you blind guides. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. It's possible that Jesus is following the pattern of woes from Isaiah chapter 5 here or from Habakkuk chapter 2. It sounds Old Testament judgy. Because it is. Jesus is not safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Last week, if you were here, it was the Jewish religious leaders who were trying to trap Jesus, testing him, trying to assert themselves over him. But each time Jesus showed himself to rightly understand the scriptures... And he put his his opposition in their place. In fact, we ended last week, the end of chapter 22, with Jesus applying Psalm 110 to himself, uh, where we read, King David is speaking, The Lord, that is God the Father, said to my Lord, that is the long-awaited King Jesus, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And there were Jesus' enemies being put under his feet. Interestingly, part of what we just read in verse 12 of chapter 23 
Jesus said, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I can't count how many times that theme comes up in the Bible. Humility, humility, humility. We've been in this section of Matthew's Gospel for some weeks where the hardness of the Israelites' hearts, particularly the leaders, is what is on view. They've been given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to recognise who Jesus is and to bow the knee to follow him, but they will not. And even as we look at this really heavy part of the Bible where Jesus is appearing quite strong, lion-like, notice how it ends if your Bible's there, verse 37 to 39. Jesus, he actually likens himself to a mother hen wanting to gather Jerusalem, the leaders and the people in, wanting to gather them in as a hen gathers the chickens. But they were not willing. What we have on view in this passage is God's justice and his mercy. A God of wrath and welcome. Jesus cares about wrong. Woe to you terrible leaders. How devastating was the impact that they had on others. But also a God of welcome. He's willing to bear the punishment upon himself. He's going to the cross if only they, if only we accept the invitation. So I guess that's kind of the bigger picture of what's going on in this passage and around it. But what is the, what is the verdict that Jesus pronounces on the Israelite leaders that was just read to us. What does it have to do with us today, this afternoon? I remember when I was at Bible college, I, um, I had a bit of a whinge to the principal about a particular lecturer. It wasn't a formal complaint or something. It just came up in, in conversation. But this lecturer, from my point of view, was not doing a great job. Yeah, the, the principal of the college, he listened. And then he said to me, Are you a good student? And he said, a good student can learn from even the worst teacher. I reckon this is the kind of lesson for us this afternoon. An opportunity to learn from the terrible example of the Jewish religious leaders. But perhaps even more strongly than that, a warning that we don't do similar Because this is a big warning against hypocrisy, which can be a real danger, especially for anyone in a, in a leadership position. Just look again with me at verses 1 to 2. I'll, I'll read. Uh, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That is, they, they sit in a position of authority. Verse 3, so... You must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. It's powerful imagery, isn't it? Don't do as they do. 
Uh, they don't practice what they preach. Now, I, I want to pick up three or four themes that sort of run through this chapter. And one of the big themes is that the, re- the religious leaders, they care only about appearance. Uh, they're getting around in verse 5 with their wide phylacteries. That stood out to you, didn't it, as we were reading it? Thankfully, there's a footnote in the Bible that tells us what that is. The phylactery, their boxes containing scripture verses strapped to the, the forehead and to the arm. Sounds a bit bizarre, doesn't it? Uh, and they're, they're getting around with these phylacteries and they have the tassels coming off their, their clothes as well. What, what is it with religious leaders wanting to wear special clothing? It's about appearance, says Jesus. They see themselves as, as better than others, verse 6. They want the best spot at the banquets, the best seats in the synagogues. Greet me with respect, they're saying, as they insist on being called rabbi, teacher, father, instructor. But not so with you, says Jesus, verse 8. Don't do what they do. You're not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Verse 9, and don't call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. This is not reference to the biological dad, by the way, but the religious person saying, call me father. No, says Jesus, those external things don't go with them. Special clothes, special seats, special names. No. Look, I'm really thankful that we're not a part of a tradition where me as the minister has to wear some kind of weird clothing. Uh, You know, robes or collars or, or whatever else. But there can be a tendency for me as a leader in the church to think that I'm something special. There was this great moment a couple of weeks ago before church or after church, I can't remember. I was chatting with a couple of blokes. This church, by the way, a local church, it's about seven years old. We're talking about this and I said, I can't believe you've been listening to me for that long. And one of these blokes said, we're not listening to you, buddy. It's good, isn't it? It's true. Uh, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We each have a role to play. We listen to Jesus. He's our teacher. God is our father. So we just keep on pointing each other to him. We keep on pointing each other to the scriptures. It's so easy to want to make ourselves into something when we're not... Uh, But verse 11 and 12, it's humility, humility, humility. That theme, caring only about appearances, special clothes, special seats, special names, Jesus says no. Later in verse 25, the fifth woe. Jesus has a go at the religious leaders It's like they're doing the washing up. There's lots of powerful imagery in this chapter, isn't there? They're doing the washing up, but instead of cleaning the the inside of the dish where all the muck actually is, they're just prettying up the outside. Look at halfway through verse 25. 
Jesus says, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. In the sixth woe, verse 27, he calls them whitewashed tombs, beautiful uh, on the outside. But uh, look with me at verse 28 if your Bible's there. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. This doesn't first apply to us. Uh, But we want to appear neat and tidy too, don't we? As though we've got it all together, a bit beautiful on the outside. We may not really want others to know what goes on in our heart. But it's the heart that matters. The the Christian life, Jesus has been so clear about this in Matthew's Gospel. The heart is what matters and transformation happens from the inside to the outside. As God does his work on us by his word and spirit, he transforms us from the inside to the outside. The religious leaders cared only about appearances. And Jesus says it's the heart that matters. Do you notice that another big theme that runs through this chapter is the religious leaders, their teaching is actually poison. From that first woe in verse 13, the the image is there, there's a door into God's kingdom and the religious leaders are lingering around the door They don't go in, they're just sort of hanging out there. And if that's not enough, they shut the door on others who are actually trying to go in. These are the leaders of God's people doing the opposite of the thing they should be doing. Instead of talking about Jesus, instead of pointing people to him, they're on about some other thing. The second woe, verse 15, look there. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. It's heavy, isn't it? In the third woe, verse 16, they're described as blind guides. I don't know if you've ever been guided somewhere by a blind person but we can imagine the difficulty I'll show you the way says the person who has no idea where they are and no idea where they're going and this is Jesus's assessment it's his verdict it's his judgment on the Jewish religious leaders that they were saying stupid things verse 18 to 20 like if you swear on the altar it's not binding say whatever you like by swearing on the altar. No one will hold you accountable. But if you swear by some gift that's happened to have been made holy because it's been sat on the altar, well, then it's binding. They don't let people into the kingdom. They turn their converts into children of hell and they're like blind guides. Their teaching is poison. It's some verdict, isn't it? This is the people who are meant to be pointing others to God. 
the center of the seven woes is verse 23 and 24, a third theme, where these Jewish leaders, they major on the minor. We imagine them in the kitchen. Uh, They're tithing, even the spice rack, giving 10% of the the coming to the Lord. That's next level, isn't it? I imagine there's some attention to detail necessary to make that work. I don't even know what spices we own, let alone dishing out 10% of them. But look halfway through verse 23 and into 24. You're tithing the spice rack. Great, you know, good. Attention to detail. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter. Sure, you know, do the thing with the spice rack, but without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. And we understand that gnats are small, don't we? And camels are quite big. Uh, What they're doing is like the person driving along in their car, paying such attention to to obeying the speed limit, I must not go over the speed limits, as they're on their way to commit adultery. You see the hypocrisy? The the, the person who, who serves on the music team at church, so careful to get every note just right, you know, to God's glory. I want to get all of the notes perfect. But in the process, failing to work in the team and destroying relationships. Majoring on the on the minor. Back in chapter 12 of Matthew's Gospel, there's that scene where the, the Jewish religious leaders, that they have a go at Jesus and his disciples for picking grain on the Sabbath. They're just walking through a grain field and they pick some grain as they're going. And for the Jewish religious leaders, that's working on the Sabbath. The day of rest, you can't work. They fail to recognize who is standing in front of them. The one who fulfills the Sabbath, the one who brings ultimate rest. They get so caught up in the the details of the law, they don't even recognize the one to whom the whole law and prophets point. These Jewish religious leaders are, are keeping up appearances. It's all about externals, how they look, where they sit, what they're called. Their teaching is poisonous. Instead of leading people to God, they lead people to hell. And they major on the miners. There they are. How ridiculous with their spice rack. And off they go to commit adultery. And they fail. They fail to recognize Jesus. I reckon that sort of leads to the fourth theme, that they fail to receive the messengers. Look at that last woe with me, uh, verse 29 to 32, I'll, I'll read. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we'd have lived in the days of our ancestors... We would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. 
So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You hear their reasoning. If we were there back then, back in the day, we would have listened to the prophets. We wouldn't have killed them. But what are they doing now? They're plotting to kill the, the Messiah himself. They're failing to recognize Jesus. And soon the blood of those early gospel messengers will be on their hands too. If you think back to the wedding banquet parable that Jesus told at the start of chapter 22, the, the religious leaders, they're, they're like those being invited to, to this banquet to end all banquets. And we, and we might picture invitation after invitation after invitation, piles of letters in the letterbox, piling up out the front of their, their, their house. But they kill the postie. Despite all the evidence, despite so much opportunity, they've failed to respond rightly. Jesus longs to gather them in. Yet they were not willing. And even as we look at a passage like this where Jesus appears quite lion-like, the, the judgment is so heavy. His compassion is so evident too. Uh, a rather long J.C. Ryle quote should come up on the screen, uh, hopefully. J.C. Ryle says, Let us understand that the ruin of these who are lost is not because Christ was not willing to save them, nor yet because they wanted to be saved but could not, but because they would not come to Christ. Let the ground we take up be always that of the passage we are now considering. Christ would gather men, but they will not be gathered. Christ would save men, but they will not be saved. Let it be a settled principle that men's salvation, if saved, is holy of God and that of man's ruin, if lost, is holy of himself. The evil that is in us is all our own. The good, if we have any, is all of God. As Jesus cried out with great compassion over Jerusalem, 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 you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. Perhaps it's appropriate to, to imagine something similar, Australia, Australia, Queensland, Queensland. Bagara, Bundaberg, oh Bundaberg, Bagara, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Are you willing? Let's turn that to prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not tolerate dodgy leadership. Lord, it is devastating to see the way that the Jewish religious leaders were caring only about externals, it being all about them. 
Lord, we can see the tendency of that in us as well, that we want to appear to be great, that we want to be seen as great by others. Lord, help us be wary of this hypocrisy. Please, Lord, protect us from keeping up appearances. And loving Father, we pray that we would be a church community where the teaching is not poison, where we open the door and welcome people into the kingdom, where we point to Jesus and say, look at him, trust in him. And Lord, we're sorry for the ways we've failed, perhaps ways, Lord, we're not even aware of. Lord God, help us not major on the minor stuff, but help us focus on Jesus. Help us fix our eyes on him. And Lord, when we are tempted to be distracted, please help us. Please help us help one another in this as well. And loving Father, as we look at our region and our, our country, our world, it's our desire that many, many people would accept the invitation to come to Jesus and find forgiveness and hope and life. And so, Lord, we pray that there would be many willing hearts, that you would be softening hearts, and that people would be accepting the invitation when they hear it. Lord God, we pray that you would forgive us for any hypocrisy. We pray that you would help us identify it. And we pray that by your word and spirit, you would be transforming us from the inside to the outside for your glory. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.